set list for you today. We got angels, we got Olympians, well, sort of, and we have teenagers. <laughs> uh, it's to go in al go alphabetically at least. We have more than that, but still, you know, it's a uh, it's a pretty good playbill. Uh, and I think we want to kick off the the celebration, as it were, with Thirteen the Musical. And uh, Thirteen the Musical, which uh, I saw recently, it was a good show. Uh, and actually, we had some we had interviews about it with. Kira LaRue, who was uh, one of the actors in it, and Chris Adams, who directed it. And I saw both of them at the show. I saw, well, I saw Chris at the show, and I saw Kira in it, and I was very impressed by what both of them had to offer in this situation, because 13 was a very interesting show, and I was very pleasantly surprised by it. See, here's the interesting thing about 13. It's a, it's a coming-of-age show, and I like coming-of-age stories. I've seen a lot of them. I've read a lot of them uh, in my time, and... And, oh, oh I'm, I'm sorry, Ashley, was your microphone off this whole time? Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Uh, there you are, sorry. Yeah, right, yeah, right. And joined by my host, <laughs> Ashley Park. Yeah, I just walked in right now. Don't don't say that. You are very good at the boards. Anyway, right. yeah, I'm really yeah. excited for the show today. Sorry, I was just, I was just rambling about 13 the musical. Yeah, yeah. Bit. We just uh, decided to kick off with that because we've got angels, Olympians, and teenagers on the show today. So. A lot of stuff happening. Yeah. And I figured we'd start, uh, you know, start in reverse alphabetical order with teenagers. Mm -hmm. And I was just saying, um, I was very impressed by 13, the musical, at the waterfront. And uh, the interesting thing was, my expectations for this, I don't want to say they were low, because we had the interview with of Kira course, and yeah. Chris, and they were both obviously really engaged. But I, um, I've seen, I was in a lot of shows in high school, I was in and around a lot of shows in high school, mm -hmm. and y you get to accommodate a certain... A, a certain set of expectations with that because a high school production you know like it's it's a learning there's a budget. experience that's the reason why there's a budget oh yeah it's a very real budget and uh, this was a professional production was the thing the budget was it, it was visible that they'd put money into this and they put most of the money into the cast and crew and it showed mm -hmm. because uh, i think like chris adams the director when we had him in he said that he's been working in theater and in choir for a while and the yeah, arrangement right. showed that it was really it was it was an excellently put together show so much so that it felt very professional the band leader michael kraber is actually a grammy nominated and juno award winning artist mm -hmm. And the band was uh, it was it was a, it was a he was on piano. There was a bassist. There was a guitarist and a drummer. It was a four person band. Yeah. And they accompanied it very well. And Believe it or not, that was not film. intentional. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a little bit of music, well, yeah. right? When you're talking about the band, just get us a sick beat in here. Yep. Anyway, then then it sounded like it was really well done, well performed by the cast. I'm guessing, um, how how were the uh, how was the acting? Okay, so the acting in this one was also very good. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that I um, you recognize characters in this. These are characters who you pe these are people who you actually kind of know. And the main character, as they said, the point of it is that the main character Evan is this is is basically a tryhard new who, kid. Yeah, who he will. He wants to fit in. Yeah, and he's good at it, too. He's not like it. Like, I think the bad connotation of tryhard is when you're when people are socially maladjusted in this regard. Mm -hmm. And it often comes it comes off as a cringy attempt or dis disingenuine. That's the reason why it's cringy. Yes, it feels disingenuine. smarmy. Actually, that was worse, which was which was kind of me in high school, which is kind of the thing I want to get around to is that I expected to relate a lot less to this. Like, this didn't move me to tears or anything, but I oftentimes with coming of age stories, which I like, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. um, I, I have a hard time relating because in high school, I didn't have, I never had a problem mm -hmm. fitting in. It, actually, no, that's not, that's not really true. It didn't bother me too much because like most teenagers, possibly all teenagers, I was incredibly self-involved. And <laughs> it, it, it went to the point yeah, yeah. where I was kind of on my own momentum so much. It only occurred to me probably in the last couple months of high school that mm -hmm. this was I don't want to say antisocial behavior, but it wasn't helpful. And mm -hmm. I thank God I learned that when I did. But it was it was not it was not helpful. It was very I went from being just very going on my own steam a lot of the time in those first three years of high school mm -hmm. to just being incredibly smarmy because I um realized that I should I I, I, I should socialize, you know, and I, I like I like people. I'm an extrovert. Mm -hmm. So hence the reason I'm sitting here. And the thing about this was that uh, I kind of I understood this the the kid Evan's desire 
to make his party memorable. And the guy yeah, playing yeah. Uh, Evan, like, the party's his bar mitzvah too, and they don't, they actually, his Judaism is actually kind of relevant to the story because okay, they make great. a thing out of that. These yeah. are distinct characters with distinct backgrounds, and I liked that. The only adult portrayed, because the cast is entirely teenage, is his rabbi mm-hmm. addressing him on be a man, and that's becoming a man as the theme of the bar mitzvah is also a theme of the show. Mm-hmm. The kid playing, sorry, that's Graham Vercere. I'm sorry if I mispronounce any names. Um, he was actually... I, I think he did a fine job with it, but mm-hmm. it was a 60-40 performance for me because 40% of his performance, like he had like young Michael J. Fox levels of charisma. Mm-hmm. And the other 60% of his performance, he just seemed kind of, you know, I I this I don't think this is should be intended negatively, but as a kid, like it, it seemed that this was just sort of something he does. Mm-hmm. And that makes mm-hmm. you less involved in it. It doesn't make you uninvolved in it because you yeah. still understand this. You still understand the desire uh, to have friends. And the, the friends that he develops uh, among the outcasts at his school, which are um, Julia McLean's Patrice and, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Julian Lokash's Archie, are um, both, like Patrice is a social outcast because, they don't really explain why, Archie is he terminally ch- ill oh, okay. and has crutches. And uh, they are his true friends, but of course, there's the narrative of him trying to suck up to um, characters like uh, the the archetypical jock Brett, played by Jason Sakaki, and um, in turn to get to him, uh, Kira's Kendra character. Mm-hmm. And I do want to say that the villain of this isn't Brett, although Brett is not uh, the character of Brett isn't a good person. The villain is. Michelle Kreber as Lucy, and she was a standout performance because she Ooh. was enjoying herself so very much throughout this. Tell us about the role of Lucy. So Lucy is uh, Kendra's best, f- oh, best okay, friend. Oh, okay, gotcha. And she has a crush on Brett, but uh, she's also extremely manipulative. Mm-hmm. And she has not one but two villain songs, in one in each act. Very good singer, by the way. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just um, she's has professional accreditation in this regard. I think she's the oldest person to cast, too. Mm-hmm. Um but, uh, like, for example, when she realizes that Kendra's been set up on a date with Brett, she advises her, basically gives her the rundown of the, uh, what I'm given to understand anyway, as someone who's never experienced this, the uh, slew of horrible options you're given as a, as a girl growing up. Is that, as because the option of, they're going to a scary movie, and it's assumed that he's going to try something. You know, lean up. Make a move. The tongue, as they say. And never call your body part and preface it with the. It just, it's just weird. No, no, I won't make the joke. I won't make the joke. Nope, 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 nope. Yep. But uh, don't. <laughs> basically, what she says to Kendra is that you gotta be careful because, well, not in those words. What she says specifically is if you enjoy, if if you act like you enjoy it, you're a slut. If you act like if you. If he if he's into it, but you blow him off, you're a tease. So the only thing you can do is say, "I am a good." This is verbatim, and so so it's gonna sound creepy. I am a good girl. I don't do that, which it, 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 that bothers me. I I I I, I, I like most of people with it, a it sense of the golden rule don't yeah. like double standards in general, and I wouldn't hold anyone to that. So, but that's a thing that happens a lot, especially you know. Like, I don't know if you've seen Daydream Nation. This is another coming-of-age movie where that almost exact same thing is said verbatim by Kat Dennings. Uh, and with that, you kind of see that these are, the, to a point, when you only have a limited set of identities to latch onto, these are things that are forced upon you, which might be the theme of it, is is sort of what role you fill. At risk of it sounding too grim, the other there are other <laughs> members of the cast who are really sort of scene stealing as well. Mm-hmm. But I I, I do want to say that Michelle Kreber made an excellent villain because she was really enjoying it. She was kind of hamming it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. She had a good time. There was also Brett, sort of his posse, who are two of the whitest kids possible. And I want to say this because <laughs> they do a sort of boys to men routine, uh-huh. and they can both sing really well they mm-hmm. get a lot of time to do that they do this sort of smooth um almost doo-woppy thing yeah. at their intro number and i i laughed at that i laughed at several points during this it was legitimately funny um and i guess uh, if i had one uh, issue with it which is an issue of um they don't develop the character patrice very well and it's an issue with the show Mm. Uh, she's just, a sort it, of reactive character. Okay, it's just more like, you know, this person's an outcast and 
you don't need to know more about that. Because mm-hmm. the main character is Evan, right? Yeah, he's yeah. he is someone who will not have any trouble fitting in anywhere uh, if he's given even a modicum of social resources. And he is, because mm-hmm. he has that ability. Uh, and that's that's a, that's a so type with, of person. But with Patrice, it's just like, look what ha- could happen to you kind of thing. Well, pretty much. Like, yeah. And it's never... One thing I did like about this is that no one ever explains why they dislike Patrice, which, like, a- as I remember in high school, because, again, I was oblivious to this because I was just mm-hmm. running on my own steam so much. Um I, I often I, – I, I just ignore this and get informed of it after and just be confused. Uh-huh. You ever have that moment? I, I still get that from people I knew in I high school. I used to, but now I'm more like um, – I guess I'm more aware of my surroundings. I'm not really into my own feelings as much. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing So I notice like that a little bit more. It's like hard though because you have two options. You have one where you're so socially aware of everyone outside of yourself – that you know, you basically run your life through their means of you know what's the level of you know, social agreeableness between me and this other person, or you can either not deal with that because other people's drama can be so draining, and you having to latch oh, on yeah. to other person's life makes you not really enjoy your own life. Or you can do what you know, you know, um, other people do, which is go like I don't really need to have this constant level of awareness of people around me. I'm just gonna focus on myself. So it's like a good balance of the two that I guess will bring someone like actual social fulfillment without feeling drained by social responsibility, a.k.a. you know, like, what are they doing? What are they doing? Do I need to know what they're doing? Like that kind of thing. It's like hard. It's really hard now with the onslaught of social media and everything having to be connected. I, I'm uh, I'm surprised that they didn't actually touch on that because they don't really. In, it, um, is, isn't this kind of dated though? Is that the reason why? Um, what well, was Thirteen the Musical like written? It was written more recently. Yeah, but I think was it that before, they like, just kind of figured. I, I I think that regardless of that, it doesn't hurt it. Yeah. Uh, the thing about it that is, I think, most illustrative of that is the ending song to the first act, which is also my favorite song in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, is them getting ready for Friday night, and it shows how incredibly self-conscious one is with mm-hmm. that. And that is, like, that's that's not, you know, it's not great to be inspecting yourself all the way through and driving yourself up the wall. No, no. Uh, but that's sort of what you do as, as a teenager because you are aware of it. And... It's even more amplified because it's, like, you know, high school, so you're in more of a... Con- a contained space. Well, for me, so I the, never... the ripple effects are stronger. For me, one thing that I kind of did, because yeah. I had these feelings of self-consciousness, everyone does, but I did not know. I had, I had no idea what the social standard was to hold them up to. So the closest thing I held them up to were the standards I kind of got from um, what I learned about socialization from, which was books and, and movies mostly. Uh-huh. And uh, this resulted in, among other things, me wearing what was essentially... Uh, not formal wear, but semi-business, I'd say business casual ensemble for, yeah, well, I I still do, (laughs) kind of, but for, I would say, the majority of my high school years, because that was just where, that was what I was taking in at the time. That was what seemed correct to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that I had the advantage of making these inferences from something that was very static, which was media, but on the other hand, it was socially distant. And, uh, that was one thing that made it – that was one thing that I did anticipate would make it a little harder to relate, and it, it, it was. But it was still a very good show. It was still a show that I, I found – like, I laughed a lot. This was a funny show. Mm-hmm. It was – it was it was enjoyable. It had it had some pretty good. Uh, there were a lot of good lines about religion in it, uh, mm-hmm. and remembering them specific. I don't want to spoil them. I mean, go see the show. Honestly, that's my recommendation. Go see the show. It runs until October eighth at the waterfront. Uh, bring on tomorrow. Hey, they brought it on with this. Yep, it's uh, until October sorry, the eighth, right? Yes, it is. Until there's October still, the eighth. There's still, still got time. some time. Go you go check it out. Yeah, it's it like um. I like, though, that it gets you reflecting about high school because I, um, I think a lot of time when people go to university, especially when people do what I did, which is just leave, <laughs> um, people try to forget it. And I think that means you don't learn. So that's correct. I don't know. I, I guess so. Good God, my voice. <laughs> that's okay. Your voice is not that bad. Don't worry about it. I, I can hear it in the headphones and it goes up really high <laughs> Anyway, anyway, anyway. It, it was a good show. Um, yeah. Makes you, brings you back to high school. Yeah. I, a lot of the, to be honest, a lot of the, the, the 
rolls are ubiquitous. Every someone's gonna fall into that role sooner or later, and you don't even know it, but you know, yeah. you end up being one. And another th- one thing that never happened to me in high school, I feel like is worth the point, is I was never bullied in high school. Uh, I was lucky. I was briefly in elementary school, but yeah. um, that was also when I was in a place I, I was I was not in the elementary school I was in most of the time I was in Quebec mm-hmm. which has colored my opinion of Quebec ever since I'm being perfectly honest but um, anyway uh, but uh, I was never bullied in high school and I didn't go to a high school that had a lot of that as a problem I don't know if it was going on mm-hmm. but if, if it was going on it wasn't blatant and I realized that if I went almost anywhere else I probably would have at least been exposed to that but I also realized that I, I, I'm a very reactive person I, I, I don't tend to take things passively so i'm i don't want to i don't like to think because this ends the show the characters of brett and lucy there's no resolution with them the last scene brett has is punching evan um that's not really a spoiler you're gonna want to understand where that comes from and you get a lot of context with that coming up to the show Mm -hmm. but if I, i think it's it's really easy to say not having it happen to you, but if someone's about to hit you, you don't think about what you do next, at least to me. And that's the way I've always thought about it. And that is also the thing that distances me from this sort of thing. I don't know. Maybe that's irrelevant. But that's something I've, I've, I've thought about, especially when thinking about the last bit of this. Like, mm. Because bullying and ostracism, I, I, I didn't go through either of those things. Mm-hmm. Well, I personally did, and... Really? Yeah, I did, I did. I was bullied severely in elementary school, um, in, like, second grade, and then bullied pretty bad in high school, too. But the main thing is that it was not one bully. There's no such thing as, like, one bully, I think. That is kind of, like, fictionalized, to be honest. There's a head bully, but most of the time, people won't pick on people by themselves because then it makes you look like, you know, to be honest a jerk people go why are you why are you doing that it's similar minded people who kind of get together who feed off of each other's insecurity or sense of false superiority and then pick on somebody who happens to be the most um i guess available available on their radar so to me like when i went to school in high school um i was actually quite outspoken too i'm still outspoken now to be honest and I'm going to just do high school because elementary school one was, like, really, really messed up. I don't know why they bullied me. That was really messed up stuff. Children can be really scary. Yes, I'm just going to say that. Yes, they're just, they just have a lot of, like, they don't know how to process their feelings, so they just go hate. Then that's it. Anyways, I'm not going to go into that. That really messed me up for a while. But um, in terms of high school, it was uh, just because I participated. That was, like, the main reason why I was bullied, because I participated. A lot of other people, especially um, um, from my racial, like, background, I would say, or people who look similar to me, they're quiet. They don't need to participate because, you know, they are quite smart. They can just get whatever they want uh, in tests and whatever. But for me, I participated because I like to participate. And because of that, I was made a target by, it was like a racial, it was like a racial thing, to be honest, by a group of kids who were white. And the thing is, it wasn't just one person doing one thing. It was a multitude of things that piled up, piled up, piled up. And then that really made me realize that um, talking to a teacher doesn't really help. That, um, like, you know, talking like, you know, venting behind their back doesn't help because it doesn't really solve the problem. It makes me feel better momentarily, but it doesn't really stop what's happening to me. And the main thing that I really took out of it is a silent classroom who allow who people allow that to happen is a place where these people can get stronger. So you can't ignore bullies. People say just ignore them. You can't really ignore them. You need to have people understand that, you know, this is a terrible thing and you should stop it. And I think the one part where I really, really broke down is when we had a substitute teacher and the uh, group of bullies, I would say, were, were basically throwing curse words. And then, um, then the sub was like, okay, who said that? And they all said, I did it, which makes no sense whatsoever, right? But then I was kind of going to the teacher, like, I didn't do it, obviously. And then, of course, you know, they're, they're all talking at once. I, I looked to my friends like, help me, help me, please help me. Because my friends are in that class too. 
So it just really is all about who is talking and who is talking. So like, you know, whose word do I go on? So I was looking at my friends to please support me because these are the same people who were talking so much, you know, stuff behind the back of these people. Like, oh, this person's terrible, that person's terrible. But when it really counted and I asked them to help, I remember actually looking at them in the eye, please help me, like a silent kind of plea. And they just looked away from me. That's when I knew I was like totally screwed. I was like, oh my God, really, you guys? Really? And then I immediately like snapped and broke. That's how it, that's how it is. Like when you have somebody who's really looking out for help in any sort of way, if you just turn the other cheek, that's how you break somebody. More worse than bullying, I would say. Indifference. So, yeah. Uh, so that's the reason why I'm very anti-bullying and I'm very anti-standing up for everything. Understandable. Mm-hmm. That's, that's quite something. Yeah, yeah it's say. totally fine, though. Like, it made me stronger as a person. Would I forgive those people? I, nah. But I'm pretty sure if you blow off, you know, your schooling and blow off people and treat them like dirt, something's going to happen to you. So who knows? Hope for karma. <laughs> and that's actually kind of the way 13 ends is that it, it ends with saying that this is an ending, it's a beginning, which would be yeah. trite, except, you know, you're 13 years old. If there's anything that comes to an end when you're 13, it's, I don't know, you're, you're the zone of non-puberty. That's right. It ideally should be a point when you're starting to do things. And they get that. I think it was great for that. Mm-hmm. You carry on. Anyway, I think we're going to go to a few As- short messages from our advertisements and sponsors, and we'll be right back with more content. A word from our sponsors. <laughs> Experience some of the best cinema from around the world used as related creator talks and events at one of North America's largest film festivals. With more than 300 films from 73 countries, this program includes the pick of top international film festivals as well as many undiscovered gems from around Canada and the world. This year, be sure to catch CATR-sponsored film, Tattoos, a poignant coming-of-age romance between two punk music connoisseurs, screening September 30th and October 1st. For more information and tickets, visit viff.org. The most powerful motivational speeches that I have ever heard came from people who told me I couldn't do something. (laughs) You know why? Because when they told me I couldn't do it, I was bound and determined to show them that I could. All Access Pass is back for season two. We are a collectively run weekly program that discusses equity, inclusion, and accessibility issues on and off UBC's campus, including both visible and invisible disabilities. You can catch All Access Pass every Thursdays from 2 to 3 p.m. Anyone can get involved. No experience is necessary. People of all abilities are welcome to join. Check us out on Facebook at All Access Pass or get involved by emailing accessibilitycollective at citr.ca. The AIDS Vancouver Helpline is here to help. Open from 9 to 4, Monday to Friday, the Helpline answers questions about HIV and safer sex. Call to find medical support in your area without giving your name. Run by volunteers, the Helpline is one of the many programs from AIDS Vancouver combating the HIV epidemic in the Lower Mainland. While not medical professionals, our volunteers answer your questions confidentially and anonymously. The helpline number is 604-696-4666 or contact us at aidsvancouver.org. TransCare BC works to enhance the coordination of trans health services across the province and offer expanded health services to support transgender communities. They are doing this by developing gender-affirming, client-centered models of service. Ensuring access to gender-affirming and supportive health care that is equitable and available. And supporting network development to make sure trans and gender-diverse individuals, their families, and health care providers have access to information, resources, and support. Check out phsa.ca to learn more about this program and lend your voice to help create an inclusive and supportive system for the trans members of our community. And 
welcome back to The Arts Report. You're listening to CITR Radio 101.9 FM, broadcasting from unceded territory of the Muskingum people here I'm in UBC. Still, I'm still Jake Clark. I'm still Ashley Park. And, of course, we got to talk about VIF. We got to talk about it. It's a big event. Mm-hmm. There was a huge opening um, last week, Thursday, red mm-hmm. carpet. A lot of stars came. Very uh, high-profile directors as well. Uh, really interesting stuff. Let's talk about VIF. What did you see? Well, so I saw Meditation Park review pending next week. Mm -hmm. And Son of Sophia, which can't wait. Um, (laughs) Okay, so Son of Sophia is... What's it about? So Son of Sophia is a movie by Elena Siku. Mm -hmm. Siku. She's Greek. Uh, She's... And this is, I believe, is her sophomore feature. She's also directed a documentary. And um, it's about... It's set in the 04 Summer Olympics, which were in Athens. Oh, okay. And an 11-year-old Russian boy named Misha arrives to live with his mother, Sofia. I thought Son of Sofia would be a double entendre with Sofia Bulgaria. Not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Sofia doesn't tell him that in the two years they've been separated. So his father died, so that's why he's moving there. In the two years that he and his mother have been separated, uh, she has married a much older fellow named Mr. Nikos, played by Thanasis Papagiorgiou. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sofia is played by Valerie Shaplanawa. Mm-hmm. Excuse me for that. And Misha is played by Victor Komut. And um, basically, this movie, uh, whew, ha, I thought this was a comedy. Okay. Uh, and parts of it are comedic. Mr. Nikos, as a character, had basically has his children's show in the 70s where he explains fairy tales with Freudian terminology while playing all the characters. And he mm-hmm. tries to teach Misha Greek okay. the same way. It doesn't go well, he never learns Greek. Uh, and also, he runs away when he figures out that Sophia and Mr. Nichols are married, which she didn't tell him. Okay. Uh, and takes up with an extra on a TV show Nikos works on named Victor. I have a question. How old is the son? Eleven. Eleven years old. Okay. Uh, and this ex- uh, extra, played by Artemios Havalitz, mm. is uh, Victor. He's Ukrainian. Um, he's uh, also an aspiring Olympian and a male prostitute. Mm-hmm. And... He uh, he starts. He takes Misha under his wing, his little brother, and basically gets up into the point where he's near. He nearly offers Misha's services, but Misha runs away back yeah. to Mr. Nikos Good. and uh, Sophia. Yeah, um, the darkness doesn't Misha. end there. Mr. Nikos has a stroke and okay. is paralyzed. Now, Misha doesn't like Mr. Nikos very much. You can't tell, really, because a kid is very silent during this. And I will say this. Uh, Victor Com- I-, I don't like bashing child actors. I'm not going to bash this kid. But the script has this character, and the way he's portrayed, he's very silent. The kid has this very pale skin and dark hair. He looks like the kid from The Omen. He never uh, smiles. He has this creepy, even stare through the entire film. Every time you see him... It it kills like the, the any joy the film had because his his affect is so out of place and so deliberately creepy, and this this whole film is shot with these very symmetrical framed shots, which makes it seem like someone saw fifteen minutes of a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Made Wes the movie, Anderson. saw the rest of the An- Wes Anderson movie, and said, "Oh wait, there's camera movement." Mm. Um, so with this in mind, Mr. Nichols has a stroke, uh, and is paralyzed. He's yeah, paralyzed and yeah. able to speak. And while Sophia works, Misha is alone with him in the house. And spends oh. his time uh, oh, no. gradually demeaning, and he nearly kills him by drowning him in the bath when he's bathing him. Wait, wait, who kills him? Misha pushes his head underwater. Oh, while... Misha does. I thought yeah. it was the other way around. No. Like Mr. Nikos. No, Mr. Nikos has a stroke. He can't move. I know, but I don't know. <laughs> no, no, a... But then, so in the finale, Misha invites Victor and Victor's buddies over okay, the... uh, to celebrate Mr. Nikos' birthday. Okay. Now, Mr. Nikos is this very baroque old world gentleman. He would probably not take a shine to Victor in the first place. So they trash his house. They drink his liquor. Yada, yada, yada. He's paralyzed in a wheelchair all the time. He can't stop this. And oh. including the mementos of his old show. Oh. And then Victor takes um, – uh, uh, Misha takes Victor to the side and says that Mr. Nikos is secretly gay and wants to die happy. And so oh. Victor offers to do him for free. Oh, no. To get another. Mr. Nikos, there's no indication of this. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. then says that they should help kill him to put him out of his misery. No, okay. Oh, Mr. Mm. Nikos, by the way, leaves loaded guns on the wall, so he's an idiot. Uh, but Sophia comes home as Misha is about to do the honors to check out Mr. Nikos, and he ends up shooting her through the side. Uh, oh, worth noting, every time he leaves a guardian in this, first time Mr. Nikos, second time Victor, there are these weird imagination sequences where Misha imagines himself as a teddy bear. His mother calls him a teddy bear, so he imagines himself as a bear. Okay. And the end has uh, Sophia and Misha leaving, uh, leaving the apartment of Mr. Nikos, basically. Uh, and 
this weird finale where he as a bear floats into the sky. Mm. This movie... Do you um, think the bear is maybe... Like, the teddy bear is kind of a metaphor for the seemingly, like, you know, pleasant appearance and, like, the comforting appearance of, like, a teddy, but it's actually a bear. This is Oedipus Complex, the movie. And it's deliberately so. There's a lot of very poetic themes in this. The cinematography, insofar as, aside from the fact that it's depressing and slow and unjoyful in every capacity, in a word, (laughs) Russian, um, is... but, competent yeah, in yeah. a filmmaking 101 kind of way. Uh-huh. The thing that probably I, I, I envisioned this is more of a comedy than it was. But so you remember The Student last year. I reviewed The Student for the Vip, student the Russian was, movie. Yeah, yeah. Which is a dark, dark movie, movie. Impossibly dark Russian movie. The Student, I would say, is a better movie because The Student has energy. It has a very visceral sense of connection to what it's talking about. You feel invested. Throughout this entire movie, the only character who was entertaining was engaged. Actually, there were two. There was Mr. Nichols and Victor were entertain- were engaging characters. Yeah. But again, the kid will come in and suck out all the life Yes. It, it, every time. And they, it, it's not just the performance that he's been directed to do. Yeah. It's the, the framing, the, the setup. The entire thing is this brutally anhid... It's like a fairy tale for depressives. Mm. And I just... I found... So the interesting thing about this is that there was a couple behind me, nice couple, a European, I think, French guy and a Canadian woman. And before the show, they were talking about the merits of Montreal versus Toronto in favor of Montreal, which, yeah, I kind of get that, sort of. Um, (laughs) And in the end, they had a conversation about the movie. And Mm -hmm. she was like, what did we just watch? And he's like, I kind of get it. It was funny in points. Better maybe with a glass of wine, and I was gonna say a carafe of wine would have been good. Uh, just to that actually would maybe make this an easier watch. Um, it was it was not a fun thing to sit through. Now, to be fair, I wouldn't call the student a fun movie either. But student, but it was had at least like engaging. a narrative, right? At least this narrative. It didn't seem to have one until the end, tied yeah, together yeah. the Victor and Mr. Nikos arcs. It was a more cohesive movie than I thought it was when I walked out. But I wasn't thrilled by it. Like, Hermia and Helena, Last Viv, which was a worse constructed movie but more joyful. Yeah. In that, that was a movie composed of 80 minutes of the first five minutes of an actual story. This is a story that happened but doesn't feel like one. Mm-hmm. And it's also a story full of repetitions, rather like Patterson, which we saw at Last Viv. Mm-hmm. Except Patterson uh, mined those for absurd humor. Here they're just flatly there, which is also absurdly humorous, but also just kind of drags you down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in short... It was effective in a way. I didn't like it. It just it, I wouldn't it, I recommend it. The reason it. why it feels so like um utterly banal is that you know the kid is a terrible person. You want to see it come up and it's happening. You just see everyone else fall into more and more like horrendous stuff like the stroke happening well, and, and he, whatever. You're just kind of like when will this lighten up? That's in like, any normal why. movie this kid would have turned out to be the antichrist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It just it was, I, from what you told me, I'm again, even like Omen, tired. But of the lack of actual, like, up and down, up and down kind of thing. It's kind of an exhausting movie. It sounds exhausting. It's, um, yeah. I wouldn't recommend it. It sounds unrelenting. And uh, as a seed from that, we now have an interview. Oh, no, no. It's a review. It's Uh, a review? Yeah. Oh, neat. John Q., who is part of CHR Radio, uh, he actually got to go to uh, VIP as well, and he's doing a special report for the Arts Report. Oh, cool. So, yeah. Here's uh, John Q. Here we are. VIP. Hello, you are listening to John Q, correspondent with Arts Report, CITR's premier arts coverage program. Thank you to hosts Jake and Ashley for having me on today. Right now, I am recording from the beautiful closet booth at CITR 11.9 FM's shiny new Nest Broadcast Studio Center. It is adjacent to an equally beautiful hair salon and a set of beautiful washrooms here located on the UBC Point Grey campus, which is, of course, based in the unseated of the Hunkaminum-speaking Musqueam people. So first things first, a gracious acknowledgement that uh, I am joining Jake and Ashley in their coverage of the Vancouver International Film Festival, this year being the 36th iteration. I won't get so much into the context because I'm sure Jake and Ashley have provided that beautifully. As a humble newcomer, even for me, it's easy to see that the festival is getting larger and larger every year. That means an incline in people attending 
an incline in the profile of the event itself, an incline in the cost of tickets. And I will say that while a $2 membership fee along with $15 minimum per ticket may be rather prohibitive for a day out at the movies, that the Vancouver International Film Festival has nonetheless put together a fantastic series of films from around the world. First, I'm going to focus on two films, one Canadian, one a joint European production. Again, both of these are films which, if you are so inclined, are still available at VIF for future screenings. And of course, I have the feeling that they'll be around in other capacities that you can enjoy as well. I'm also going to be talking about one collection of Canadian shorts, again, available for viewing at another VIF screening to come. And then I'm going to cap things off with talking about a more popular film, which will likely be making the Van City rounds, if not the wider release rounds, later this year. So the first film I'm going to be riffing on, Mass for Shut-Ins, part of the True North, that is Canadian programming uh, series, at VIF 2017. I'm just going to read the synopsis real quick. 20-something KJ sleeps on his grandfather Lopper's couch. The computer's on the fritz, and there's not much of anything to do. There's a lot of sitting around, eating five-cent candies, and drinking pop. Bored, KJ plays with fire, aimlessly wanders through the night, encounters strangers, and gets hassled by September, his agro-delinquent brother. Chained to a life of codependency, he passively navigates his isolated existence, but you can see the desire to escape in his eyes. Mass for Shut-Ins depicts a comatose environment in which the aging residents are dwindling away, and the futures of the young are dimly lit at best. Director Winston Dejobi bends the mundane slightly towards the surreal, distilling the directionless state of his characters into poetry and poignantly articulating the essence of their milieu. Said New Waterford, Cape Breton, where the poverty rate is among the worst in the country, Mass for Shut-Ins is a stark yet compassionate portrait of the underclass. And that is from Adam Cook, the synopsis anyway. So the screening which I saw, which was at the Cinematheque, and it was, I believe, the world premiere of the film, um, my responses coming out of it were very strong. I think the less-than-gracious compliment one might be tempted to give Mass for Shut-Ins, this new film from Winston Dejobi, is that, oh, it's a Canadian version of Gummo. It's about depicting the white underclass in a very, very poor part of the country, Cape Breton, an area that used to get by on the wealth of its fishing and resource industries, which have since terribly dwindled. But it's never to the degree of depravity that you see in a film like Gummo. Of course, I think that's a very unfair comparison because Mass for Shut-Ins is trying to do something very different. But I also have to say that coming out of it, I was never compelled to say that, oh, this is an amazing Canadian film, that this is a film that really sets a high standard amongst a certain Canadian niche. Rather, I simply felt compelled to say that this was a great film, a film with a very forward-thinking vision and a depiction of poverty that is, and I hate to say this from my perspective to make it sound exploitative and condescending, that is very lived, very real, that has to do with reflection and being amongst, being submerged into a certain mindset as opposed to objectifying it, viewing it from the outside. I think the film in general is very evocative of a sort of ennui and anxiety that honestly exists for introspective, uh, insular peoples across the entire world as we live in an era of relative economic downturn and as we live in an era when the communities that sustained us, sustained peoples, hollow out around us. Something that separates Mass for Shut-Ins from, let's say, the work of uh, Gummo or Harmony Corinne is that Mass for Shut-In is very reflective. It's not a loud film. It's not in-your-face. According to Dejobi in the Q&A afterwards, he does prefer films which, when depicting a kind of debauchery, get into the debauchery, participate in the debauchery itself, but it is a very subdued and a very sad debauchery, which Dejobi said comes from an exaggerated version of the own ennui and angst he felt growing up in Cape Breton. To that end, the film is beautifully shot. The film is... And you'll be able to hear that complete inter uh, review on our Mixcloud. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but we, uh, we got to take a word from our sponsors, and we'll get back to you with Beckett, six, Beckett 17 yeah, Beckett and 17. Angels in America. That's right.
women, dressed in lingerie, were hanging from the ceiling on meat hooks. In an adjacent room, a man was in bed with two deceased females, also wearing lingerie. He positioned their arms in a sexy embrace. Down the hall, a man holding a chainsaw stood over the motionless body of a sixth woman lying on a table covered in plastic. These are scenes from a popular music video by a Grammy award-winning artist. If we want violence against women to stop, shouldn't we stop treating it like entertainment? Join the conversation at hashtag not okay. I'm going away Look into my eyes The last Sunday of every month from 11 to 5 Won't you here with me Welcome back. All right. So we both saw Happy Days. Happy Days. And the Fawns did not show up. By Samuel Beckett. Yep. Yeah. And let's just say there was a fairly minimal cast. Yep. Very it, minimal. If you know what Happy Days is about, would you like to explain to our audience, Jake? Well, yeah. It's a show made in the 70s, about the 50s, with, uh, like, the, there's the Fawns, but who else? Is it Potsy, Ralph, Malf? I don't know who the other characters are. Truth be told, it's not a terribly good show. I mean, the most famous thing about Happy Days right now is that, you know, Scott Bayo created it, which really isn't a stamp of authority. Oh, the, the Beckett play. Yeah, <laughs> th that's also good. Uh, the Beckett play is a much more minimalist production. It deals with uh, two characters, uh, Willie and Winnie. That's right. And Winnie is the main character by a long shot. She and Willie are married. And uh, in this case, as, as Jill Vanderwood directed it, um, <clears throat> excuse me. It's okay. It, yeah. it was pretty well done. Mm -hmm. I thought the acting was splendid. The main thing that I always wonder about when I go see a Beckett play is that mm -hmm. Beckett was very, very kind of almost like protective of how we wanted his works to be staged. That was like one thing that's very Beckettian. He was like, okay, I'm going to write all this detail about how it needs to be set up because – if it's not set up the way that you know I want it to be set up, then it's not going to mm -hmm. have the same meaning. Well, the in the interesting thing about um, uh, about uh, the, uh, it's, it's um, Beverly who played Winnie. Um, I ran into a friend of mine who mm -hmm. had also seen the show at the intermission, and uh, the first half of the show is Winnie buried up to her waist in dirt, uh, unpacking various things from uh, from bag. Basically, that's right. She cannot move out of this hole. She's stuck from the. Uh, waist down. Mm -hmm. So she can only have limited motion to move her arms as such. Yes. And uh, uh, countering that, uh, there is Win Willie who does not speak and is unseen, largely, he, except for his hat. Yeah, you can see the back of his head, but you cannot see him at all in Act 1. We just assume that he is there, that his presence is there, because uh, when uh, Winnie keeps uh, talking to him, and also he makes the occasional grunt. Yeah. Uh, he only, interestingly enough, uh, my friend pointed out, he only reacts to the objects mm -hmm. moved. He doesn't really react to Winnie otherwise. And um, according to him, now I haven't read Happy Days, but according to my friend who is who's master's student in theater, um, the show sort of disregarded the physical direction. Yeah. Uh, in the Beckett play, which was intended to imitate the verbal repetition, because there are a lot of things that are repeated. Yes. Like, uh, this is a happy day, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, coming from a woman uh, buried up to her waist in dirt, you know, it's in and of itself. It's funny. Mm -hmm. And uh, the second act sees her buried up to her neck. That's right. She has lost almost all sort of, mm -hmm. of motion. She can only turn her head. Uh, the objects that she has placed are still in front of her. She forgot to put them away before. Well, there's only two. There's a gun and an umbrella. That's right. Yeah. And her bag. And uh, that's where Willie makes an appearance. Uh, still unspeaking, but it ends with him with great effort attempting to reach for the gun. Or to reach for her. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's also, uh, could be that as well. Yeah, that's like the main thing. Did he reach for the gun or did he reach for her? Yeah, and they never resolve that. Like uh, a lot of Beckett plays, there's dwells heavily on ambiguity. Mm -hmm. um, Happy Days is, uh, it, the comparison to chamber music is apt. Mm -hmm. In that it is really, it's a very minimalist production that engages mostly your auditory sense, yes. I would say. Yes, um, It's, I, I honestly don't have a lot to say about it. They, they seem, bar the, 
the difference in physical direction, which I didn't notice, mm-hmm. uh, so to be very much conveying the play. It doesn't seem like there are a lot of ways to deviate from the text within that. Those. That I bigger... think the actress. The could you read the full name of the actress who played? Um, let me just check for a second. Yeah, sorry, my throwing my glasses. Um, it was. Uh, um. Let me let me find yeah, it. Yeah, take take a look. Sorry, yeah. I'm just. Um. No, it just says Beverly. But um, the actress who played Winnie did a great job, especially in Act Two, because of Act One being, as you said, it's more like an auditory thing. You're just kind of like, like you know, like okay, she's a happy lady and whatnot. It, there isn't a lot of. Um, I I would say that if you were to kind of like nod off and then come back, you wouldn't really like feel like you missed anything. I noticed a guy who actually did that in front of us, so <laughs> it's good for that. Um, Second act, she really, oh my gosh, she blew me away. Well, she it, blew be- me away. it, it becomes incre- entirely facial, then it also becomes manic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that'll wake you up. There's quite an ear-piercing scream. Yeah. That was... Um, she almost sounded like po- poetry to me. Like yes. The way that she said the words, the way that it was expressed... It really felt like poetry to me. The musicality of it yeah. really, uh, really made sense. Then, mm-hmm. that's uh, yeah. It was a good show. It was, it was, you know, it was a long show, but a great show. Yep, yeah, commendable. And we look forward to the next Beckett show. Yeah, really. we really do. Really do. And in speaking of looking forward to something, I think we remembered last year we were looking very forward to seeing Angels in America. Oh, we were. We and were. we did. We got to. This uh, uh, this Sunday, we actually um, Which got to go see it. Which is a hell of a contrast, really, because the Beckett show is minimalist, and uh, Angels in America Fantastically, like, over the top. Yep. And you know what? I was I was glad to see Brian Markinson as Roy Cohn again. Mm-hmm. There was, uh, it's again, it's a show full of great performances, but I mentioned this last year, and I'll say it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, M- Brian Markinson as Roy Cohn really channeled that, uh, the energy of the character, like this sort of bile-spitting fury combined with yep. this almost, this this serpentine um, stealth, almost. For me, I was really impressed by Prior Walter, played by actor Damien Atkins. Yeah. In in, in Act 1, you know, Prior's just really funny, you know? He's also kind of a pitiful person. Well, you see him get degraded. You see him get de- degraded by his illness, mm-hmm. by, you know, that little, like, fall from grace, to be honest. And then... Mm-hmm. Second act, we open. He is now the new prophet. And what are you going to mm. do with all this responsibility prior? Still horribly ill. Still like... horribly ill. And I think really showcased how much of a strong actor uh, mm. Atkins was. He was just really great in the role. Uh, he was able to convey a haughtiness to the character, a vulnerability to the character, and also a really deep sense of Fear, self-loathing, and um, that dread of the uncertainty of his own life. Well, with self-loathing. Yeah. I mean, you got Lewis. And Lewis is pretty self-loathing, but it came to a point where it just self-pity. felt, yeah, it just felt like almost like played upon itself. Well, the thing about Lewis is that he's the stand-in for Tony Kushner. That's the <laughs> that Lewis is probably, I would say, uh-huh. fairly accurate to autobiographical representations of Tony Kushner. I'm not insinuating that Tony Kushner has ever done this in his life because I don't know. Mm-hmm. Lewis does some pretty horribly contemptible things. Uh, and it, but if Lewis is Tony Kushner, Tony Kushner outright hates himself. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that in the last review, like Lewis was tinged with a bit of severe self-reflection. In the second half of Angels in America, no, it, it's self-hatred because Lewis is he's portrayed uh, more as just this very weak person who it's kind of like how Pryor, uh, his disease physically debilitates him. You you lose respect for Lewis yep. as the first half goes on. You have none when the second act starts. Oh, no, no, not at all. And the interesting thing is that doesn't really go for any of the other characters. Even Roy, well, Roy Cohn, I mean, he's he's pure evil is, the, is kind of the point of the second act. The first one never really, like, you can't really expect, I mean, Roy Cohn was a terrible person. Yeah. This is Terrible rather a person. matter of historical record. And this play does make him into a cartoonish villain, and it mm-hmm. fits that. Like, he was a person who fits that. He was Donald Trump's first lawyer. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that in the second half, Pryor 
you learn to respect Pryor for his disease, the opposite happens with Cone. Mm -hmm. Because Cone doesn't really change in terms of his affect. Only his ability to conduct that mental, that incredible cognitive dissonance wavers. Mm-hmm. And Joe, too. Um, well, actually, Joe, they have one of my favorite lines is Lewis asked Joe, does it not bother you that half of your party is composed of religious fanatics and the other half are ego-anarchist cowboys? Mm-hmm. That's something I can't find together. Like, I can see how both of those people get along, but I can't see why they don't kill each other. <laughs> because those two things seem antithetical to me. Mm-hmm. I don't have a prejudice against religion or business, but I don't understand how you combine both of them. I think it's inherent. I think business is inherently amoral. Not amoral, amoral. Mm-hmm. And I think that religion is inherently moralistic. So... Uh, that, that was kind of a point that resonated with me. That was probably one point when I'm like, eh, good one, Lewis. For me, the, the, the thing that really resonated, me, uh, resonated within me are two passages. The one being when we open with the oldest, I believe, the oldest Bolshevik. Is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was the opening of that, – that's, right that's right at the opening. That's right at the opening. Which is a great monologue by the Gabrielle Rose, mm-hmm. who plays everyone. Really, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah, uh, as as the oldest Bolshevik, which is a great mon. It's about theory, and it's yeah. about the theme of it, which is progress moving forward. Mm-hmm. Which is basically the oldest Bolshevik goes, "We shall not move forward unless we have a theory." That's right. Which, uh, yeah, well, yeah, the Stalinists were were trying to say that in the eighties. They were dying in droves, but they were saying that just mm-hmm. biologically speaking, old age caught up with a lot of them. Another one I liked, and what you mentioned, progress change, is the one between Harper and also the mom. Yep. Yeah, Pitt's mom, and um, also Gabrielle Rose. Yep, and. Harper says, in your experience of the world, how do people change? The mother goes, well, it has something to do with God, so it's not very nice. God splits the skin with a jagged thumbnail from throat to belly and then plunges a huge, filthy hand in. Oh, BG Dub, a little bit graphic. He grabs hold of your bloody tube and they slip to evade his grasp, but he squeezes hard. He insists. He pulls and pulls till all your innards are yanked out and the pain, we can't even talk about that. And then he stuffs them back, dirty, tangled, and torn. It's up to you to do the stitching. And then Harper goes, and then get up and walk around. And then the Mormon mother says, just oh. mangle guts pretending. Oh, that's Lewis. That's Lois Anderson's Mormon. That's the that, Mormon. Yeah, okay. The okay. Sorry, that was, I was wrong about that. It's a mother in a Mormon diorama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that, that, was, that was actually a very poignant passage, the Mormon diorama one. The reason why I like that passage and the reason why it really goes with your idea of change is like you cannot change with that theory is what the Bolshevik said but with this particular passage in between Harper the Mormon mother and also um, kind of also playing with the change of um, prior and then the angel who says you cannot change you cannot yeah. you know my, it's anti-migration don't move basically stay where you are the angels basically want that to happen they yeah. want mankind to stop moving so that God will return because and there's a sexual element to that which we cannot get into we cannot get into that you have to go watch the show it's, no, seriously, it's still go see it. it's really really good but the angels in Angels of America they believe that all change is really destructive and that it pushed God away and that's the reason why it should be avoided, that humanity should stay still. Mm-hmm. And this is in contrast to the people who change really dramatically over the course of this play, which are Harper. Yeah. Right? Uh, Harper, like, the thing is she has solace at the end. Yeah. She yeah. really does. Like, she starts, she ends in a better place. Mm-hmm. Arguably Pryor does. Pryor as well, yeah. Cone is dead. Cone is dead. Which actually for him might be a better place considering how grimly he sees the world. Mm-hmm. But the Mormon mother in that diorama... Mm-hmm. Uh, Basically, when she does her explanation, she seems to kind of fuse both points that, you know, change is really painful, but it's something that you can't avoid. And it's something that you must kind of endure and also stitch up yourself, meaning that you have to live through it and then heal from it and then move on. Well, it was interesting to me that the old Bolshevik's monologue and her monologue are interesting because he says, we shall not advance unless we have theory, meaning that change Mm -hmm. is only made when you have a theory. And for her, change is something that you do because you have to. Because yeah. God, as with nature, is merciless. Which, if I were to believe in God, I would say, yeah, that's true. Because uh, he's either either indifferent or not there, mm-hmm. is what I would say. That's what 
reality would support. The thing about Mormonism is that the Mormons existed in change for the first part of their religion and then refused to change militantly throughout that because it's an extremely insular faith. But the reason they changed was because they had to, because Joseph Smith had to run away from the people he conned and eventually was <sighs> shot. Joseph Smith did not make it to Utah. Brigham Young did. But Joseph Smith got checked out. He was murdered. And Brigham Young uh, took his followers and a slew of wives over to the promised land of Utah, which is weird that Utah is the promised land, but okay, fair enough, editorializing aside. Mm -hmm. Th that sort of change is interesting compared to, say, the Bolshevik Revolution, which was a deliberate attempt to change the environment, sort of a reversal of that. It didn't go any better, because I don't think a country run by Mormons or Bolsheviks is going to be any anywhere you want to be, but <laughs> the point remains that both of those things are breaking new ground, one because you have to and one because you think you should. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting contrast between the two of them. Yeah. Also, that one would probably hate the other. Most definitely. I would wonder if their lifespans would overlap. <laughs> yeah, anyway, anyway, Angels was really great. Go see it. I yes. enjoyed it. I, I think that for what it represented, you know, back in the day and today, there's still some relevant themes. Of course, I think. Oh yeah. Yeah, very relevant, especially with almost like time seemed to like loop on itself. For something as weirdly topical as it is, and there's yeah. a ton of topical references to it, it ages surprisingly well. Yeah, it aged pretty well. The only criticism I have, and this is through a lens of somebody who lives in, you know, the late, you know, 2010s, is that some of the characters are quite stereotypical, but thankfully... Like the, who? Like, um... Like, you know, uh, Belize? Uh, in a, a tiny bit, tiny bit. Like, he really fulfills the, kind of like the... In that he's gay, black, or Spanish. <laughs> he kind of fulfills magical black friend a little bit. Okay, a little bit. Yeah, that, that's kind of true. Yeah. Kind of he's like, oh, Interesting these... when viewed in light of his care of Roy Cohn. Yeah, yeah. He's the guy who fixes the problems of his white friends. Yeah. Yeah. So that's... He does give Lewis a pretty good dressing down a couple he times. He does. He does. I'm really happy. Damn, Lewis. Um, Damn. And with Roy Cohn, well, honestly, it's it's hard to... Because Roy Cohn is not only a dying man, he's someone who is not going to change his mind. No, he's not. But he's also... There's the scene, I think we were... This is an interesting scene where he and Belize get really heated and Roy's goading him on. Because yeah. he'll only give him AZT to give to Pryor if when... Uh, Belize calls him um, a word that I cannot repeat here no, as you an ethnic can't. slur for Jews. Yeah. And when he does this, it's this explosive moment. And he's like, there you go. Have a bottle. <laughs> uh -huh. For him, it's, it's about bringing people down to his level. Because he knows that everyone's going to try to be above him. So the mm -hmm. only pleasure he really gets is bringing him, them down to his level. Yeah, and that's that's a consistent trait. And mm -hmm. uh, the, Roy Cohn is probably the simplest character in Angels in America, because he's also the obviously the one who there's l the least effort in humanizing. In that way, he's a very interesting character. Mm -hmm. Because for a cartoon, you can still recognize that he is a dying man grasping onto what he believes. Yeah. And that, just just go see it. It's running until the 8th. It's at the Stanley, which is a great stage. And you very know what? Good. If you didn't see the first show, they have recaps for you. Yeah. Where you can still see, where you can see Brian Markinson as Roy Cohn looking like Satan because of the red lighting. <laughs> which I, I recognize, I didn't recognize then at the time because yeah. I was sitting fairly, I was sitting at a sort of an angle to the stage. But like the lighting is so stark under him. He's yeah, got like, the Vincent really, Christ really, lighting really, under like, his face. Dark. Yeah. 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 Go see it. Yeah, definitely go see it. Um, very good. Uh, still topical even today. And has a lot of interesting ideas about change and identity. And also um, kind of not only like change in identity, but there was like a, a, a bigger kind of It feels of, epic. Yeah. It, 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 an it epic kind well of well like, and truly feels epic. Yeah. There's also a little bit of like a political talk. They don't really... Oh, there's a lot of there's a lot of political. There is talk. a lot of politics, and there's an obvious yeah. liberal bias to it, which pretty confirms both of our biases, really. To like, be honest, it's like the '80s and people are dying of AIDS, yeah. so you have to have you can't really if you have a conservative like view on that, it's like you're saying like it's totally okay for those people to die because you're not going to make that medicine easy for people to get. Well, yeah, and this is I, I'm. I mean, it doesn't address that as directly as Dallas Buyers Club. Yeah, But yeah. the the thing about AZT, the context provided about that, that's a really brutal thing to look back on. Yeah, it is. I, I mentioned this in the last review we did of this, that 
it was it was a plague. Yeah. And it wasn't treated. Mm-hmm. But yes, go see it. It's it's a it's a, it's a full meal. It's a great show, and it deserves to be seen. It's it's really long though. Mm-hmm. It is. Up. It is long. It is. It is epic. It is a full life. meal. I would say. If you can watch a David David Lean movie, you can see this play. Anyways, thank you so much for joining us on our show today. We'll be here next week Wednesday, and you are listening to the Arts Report on CITR one hundred one point nine FM. Thank you very much. All right. I'm Jake Clark. I'm Ashley Park. Cheers. <laughs>